0: This is episode number 318, Elements of Metabolic Resilience with Levels Health, Dr. Taylor Sittler. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia
1: that more commonly spike folks. But I think the overarching thing that we've seen is people typically learn a lot about their individual metabolism when they start to wear something like a continuous glucose monitor. Because we are all so different, I like to say 50% of human variation occurs at less than 1% of frequency, which means your particular enzymes and how they metabolize are quite different from everybody else's. So just wearing a, a continuous glucose monitor or getting some kind of feedback can give you a lot of information about what foods are not good or good for you.
0: Health and high performance have many different elements and many different buckets to consider. And one of those is metabolic health. Dr. Taylor Sittler is the head of research at Levels Health, a company dedicated to helping people optimize their metabolic health. Levels provides real-time feedback on how diet and lifestyle choices impact metabolic health through biosensors like continuous glucose monitors. And I was wearing one of these a couple different times to get a baseline on my metabolic health and get some insight into what things like exercise and sleep and the types of foods I was eating and how how they were impacting my metabolic health. Dr. Sittler is a physician and entrepreneur previously co-founding Color Health. He completed his residency in clinical pathology at UCSF and started a genetics research group with David Patterson in the computer science department at UC Berkeley. And if that's not enough, Dr. Sittler received a Howard Hughes medical training grant and scholarship during medical school at the University of Massachusetts, and UCSD, and has published his papers on pathogen detection and characterization. As you can see, Dr. Taylor Sittler has a lot of experience and a wide breadth of knowledge, And I was really excited to sit down with him and talk about how we can be more metabolically resilient in our lives. We talk about how to be more resilient as athletes, especially on the mental side of things, and how you can be biologically resilient is a new topic. If you want to check out Levels Health, make sure that you use the link in our show notes to do so. And I also recorded an episode with Dr. Casey Means a while back on metabolic health as well. Why should we care about metabolic health? A lot of us might think that it comes down to the weight on the scale or if you exercise or your body mass index, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're metabolically healthy. And that's why I found this conversation so interesting. People with an ideal metabolic health have ideal levels of things like blood sugar, triglycerides, high density lipoprotein cholesterol, which is your HDL cholesterol, blood pressure, and waist circumference without using medications. And these factors directly relate to a person's risk for getting things like diabetes, like heart disease, like stroke. And fun and alarming fact is that only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. How your body responds to glucose can change on a daily basis. And it's not just food that affects that. And that is another topic that we get into today. Chronic stress is something else that has been affecting many of us, especially in the last two years. And chronic stress also plays a role in our metabolic health. Today's podcast partner, Inside Tracker, is a great tool to assess parts of your metabolic health. To live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized performance system that analyzes biomarker data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to help you optimize your body and reach health and wellness goals. I've been using this company since 2017, and they make it super easy. You can either go into a lab if you're in the US, or you can have somebody come to your house for a mobile blood draw if you're in Canada, like me. And it's pretty simple, and you get to see all of this data that you wouldn't get if you just went to a doctor and got a blood test. You can set what your goals are for your health. So if your goal is something like metabolic health, or your goal is healthy aging, or say something like endurance training, those factors are taken into account when Inside Tracker recommends different lifestyle interventions that you can make so that you can improve upon these and achieve your optimal health goals. That said, Inside Tracker is about human potential, human performance, and health and wellness. It is not for sick care of disease control, but it can give you great baselines for everything that you're doing. And their app gives you so much information. It tells you things that you can do and small habits every single day so that you can improve your health and performance. Getting a personalized daily action plan with guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body, so that you can improve upon these biomarkers for your next test and see that improvement is really empowering. To get twenty percent off the entire Inside Tracker store, I highly recommend their Ultimate Test as well as their Inner Age Test. Go to insidetracker.com/sanya and that's insidetracker forward slash sanya to get twenty percent off the entire Inside Tracker store. And if you are using it, I'd love to hear how it's going for you, because it's, again, it's been something that I've been using for a number of years. And in fact, I have my next test coming up just around the corner. All right, let's get into the show. Here is Dr. Taylor Sittler. Hey, Taylor, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Sonia. Great to be here.
0: Well, it's so much fun to get to talk to you because we're both passionate about health and performance. And I think that like psychological resilience is something that we talk a lot about on the show, but biological resilience is maybe a topic that hasn't been covered in great depth. So can you tell me what you mean by biological resilience?
1: Yeah, definitely. So when we think about health, we don't really have a good definition for it. Most of the time you go to the doctor and you're, the doctor's checking to see if you have all different kinds of diseases. I think we need to flip that and think about how we can evaluate health. And this is a trend I think that's going on more broadly now. There are, uh, you know, I think there's in functional medicine, in a number of different sort of corners of medicine, we're starting to see people get interested in measuring health. And resilience, actually, in the psychological sense, was actually one of the first endeavors to try and measure health in a way. It's been measured in a number of different ways historically, mostly through psychology or psychological metrics, but really the things that, that, tie those different methods together were a stressor and an adaptation. So there was something that really perturbed the system psychologically, usually it's some kind of a trauma, and then there's an adaptation and an ability to handle that stressor over time. And that mechanism, that kind of concept applies very well in biology and particularly in areas like metabolic health and when we start looking at continuous monitoring. So when we start looking at biomarker measurements, over a period of time. What we can see is that there are very specific adaptations that the body goes through with particular stressors. And I'll give an, an example of resilience, which might be a metabolic resilience or, or biological resilience could be measured by giving someone a slug of glucose, like in an oral glucose tolerance challenge. And the, the body's response to that, the height of the glucose spike that occurs and the duration of that spike are proportional to the body's resilience. Uh, A longer spike and a a higher spike uh, are indicative that of a condition of insulin resistance and potentially uh, eventually of diabetes if the system is very out of whack. But resilience really in a biological sense, it's a stressor applied to your body and then an adaptation that can be measured.
0: That almost sounds like training too, like if someone's out running or riding their bike and you're applying a stressor, and then you're adapting to that. And it's all about how you adapt and then coming back stronger.
1: Absolutely. So I was on a podcast with um, Zach Bitter a couple of weeks ago, and we started talking about this in the context of his endurance training. And what he was saying was, uh, for instance, with his heart rate, he would run some set number of miles and check his average heart rate. And then he would train that same number of miles week over week and see a downward trend in his heart rate. And I think that's resilience in action, right? I think athletes are used to thinking in these terms all the time. I think it's one of those things that the general population hasn't yet adopted. And we use resilience clinically. So there's an oral glucose tolerance test. There's a, a cardiac stress test that a, that a cardiologist will use. So physicians have started to use this clinically for a while. It's just not sort of in the general circulation yet. And now that we're doing these, now that we're able to monitor things continuously, like glucose, heart rate, we can actually do resilience measurements all the time.
0: I think that something that's important to note with resilience is that we are able to change and it could change in both directions. But I think that a lot of times you're talking about the general population, they just think like, oh, that's just the number and I can't fix that number, that's just how I am. But in terms of you know glucose and metabolic Resilience and fitness. What are some things, number one, that you're looking at? You mentioned glucose. Like people Mm -hmm. just might not be really familiar with what is, you know, continuous glucose monitoring. What is metabolic health? What is a metabolic problem? So can you go into that direction?
1: Yeah, definitely. So metabolic health is, you know, it's important for us to also get into the state of metabolic health of the country, which is pretty poor. But metabolic health is really the health of your system, your metabolism. Every single cell in your body burns energy in the form of either glucose or fats. And it can switch, or most cells can switch between those two forms. Metabolic health is how well those cells are performing with those energy sources. So there are three main organs that are involved in making sure that there is an adequate level of energy in your body at all times. Those are liver, your fat, and your muscle. And those three are involved in this intricate kind of dance to make sure that that glucose and fat levels stay fairly consistent so that all of your cells are able to function. Cells need to be able to burn energy in order to live. So they burn energy, produce ATP, and that allows everything to happen in your body. And the, your state of metabolic health is really determined by the ability of your cells to process that that energy and the ability of your body to provide that energy at a stable level.
0: So what would it look like if somebody wasn't metabolically healthy?
1: Yeah, well, you don't have to look very far because some recent papers have suggested that roughly 93% of the US population has at least one marker of metabolic disease. So metabolically healthy folks are actually far rarer than metabolically unhealthy. (laughs) 93%,
0: 93%, that's like almost everybody.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and this is really due to the type of food that we're eating and the type of food that we have been eating for the last 20 to 30 years, or even longer. I would say in the 1970s, uh, we started subsidizing wheat and corn production in the US, which ultimately resulted in a lot of high fructose corn syrup being produced. And now we see tons of refined carbohydrates and refined ingredients in the foods that we eat. And that has massively impacted our metabolisms. First, it's overloaded us with with mostly sugars and starches, and that results in insulin resistance, which is intimately tied to metabolic health. And so someone who's metabolically healthy, I would say, is able to handle a, a pretty large meal of any kind with an appropriate insulin response and then dropping the sugar level in the bloodstream fairly soon after the meal, someone who's metabolically unhealthy may end up with an elevated sugar level in the bloodstream for a prolonged period of time. And we call that insulin resistance because usually starting with the muscle, there's no response. There's an inadequate response to pulling that glucose into the cells and removing it from the bloodstream.
0: So we're primarily focusing on glucose and how long glucose is potentially out of range and how quickly it comes back down. You mentioned food as one of the primary ways that are contributors to health or lack of health. And you mentioned refined carbohydrates. And I'm just putting this out there for the listener because carbohydrates have been demonized so much. And I'm glad that you said refined because people just put all carbohydrates under one umbrella. Can you, for the listeners unsure, can you define more specifically what is the problem with refined carbohydrates in terms of metabolism?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think fundamentally our bodies have evolved to eat food, right? That's food that you pick from a tree or from a root or something in the ground, right? Fruits, vegetables, things like that. And many of those have carbohydrates in them, but they're typically mixed with fiber, with protein, with fat in ways that your body can handle and doesn't get overwhelmed by. What has happened in the past 50 years is we've learned how to fractionate components of food very well in ways that your body doesn't do well with. It's not able to respond well and, and you basically get this overload of calories. So any kind of ideally organic, but fruits, vegetables, again, things that are sort of grown in the ground, typically your body responds quite well to. Unfortunately though if you go into the supermarket those foods are on the edges and most of the stuff that you see in the middle is packaged and as an experiment I went into a, I think it was a 711 must have been 5 or 6 years ago and just started randomly picking stuff up to see you know how often high fructose corn syrup was present high fructose corn syrup in particular is bad because high fructose corn syrup for a number of reasons causes the liver to accumulate fat and is particularly bad for the body in terms of inducing metabolic disease.
0: Yeah. So we don't want to eat processed foods. We want to eat our carbohydrates as close to form as possible when they come out of the ground or they're picked off of the plant because it still maintains fiber and proteins and some of the other nutrients that will help blunt the spike and also have other nutritional benefits. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. What are some foods that people might not realize like we talked about the refined carbohydrates and high fructose corn syrup but what are some other maybe more insidious foods that you've noticed spike people's glucose and contribute to you know maybe less than ideal metabolic health
1: Well so that's a really interesting question I think the the answer is it's different for everyone we do find some things that are that more commonly spike folks but I think the overarching thing that we've seen is People typically learn a lot about their individual metabolism when they start to wear something like a continuous glucose monitor. Because we are all so different, I like to say 50% of human variation occurs at less than 1% of frequency, which means your particular enzymes and how they metabolize are quite different from everybody else's. So just wearing a, a continuous glucose monitor or getting some kind of feedback can give you a lot of information about what foods are not good or good for you. Some of the biggest offenders that we see are Pop Tarts, for instance. They they tend to spike (laughs) a lot, not surprisingly, but but that that particular tag, because in the Levels app, you can actually tag what you're eating and then we'll correlate it with the the glucose spike. (laughs) So that one I think is the, the most common, the most, the biggest offender. Some other ones that we see very frequently are things like oats, which people think are healthy, but actually do result in in quite a bit of glucose rise in the bloodstream. And I would say, you know, pretty much any kind of a refined starch or carbohydrate and particularly drinks that have high sugar content. It turns out you can drink calories much more quickly than you can eat them. And oh, sorry, one more piece about the high fructose corn syrup. When you take in calories from from fructose and from high fructose corn syrup, there are certain hormones that indicate that you've taken in enough calories and and it's, there are satiety hormones. And those hormones are, they, they don't function as well when you take in large volumes of high fructose corn syrup, as opposed to something like, you know, like honey or some sort of a more natural sugar.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about some of the fake sweeteners or like the sweeteners that don't have calories like stevia, like how mm-hmm. does that impact um, glucose, if at all?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, most of those are actually designed to not be taken up in the intestine so they don't go across the intestinal wall. Mm-hmm. Some people have I think we have seen some shifts in glucose. It's not clear exactly why I think some of these things can be partially metabolized in the gut and then there's some idea that there's there's some other mechanism of action going on there where there's an You know, I can't say for sure, but most of these are designed essentially not to go across the intestinal wall. So for most of the artificial sweeteners that are out there, you wouldn't necessarily see a glucose spike, but it's not clear that, like, I think with some of them that more testing is really going to be needed to know whether there are other effects that negatively impact you in terms of your health. I think that the safest thing to do is really just, again, to eat food (laughs) and not artificial food.
0: food. Yeah. Yeah, Eat real
1: food (laughs) is really what it comes down to
0: yeah, so I've used a continuous glucose monitor and had it paired with levels a couple of times and gotten some interesting data for myself. How often are people supposed to be, you know, testing this? because you wear the monitor, I think it lasts for two weeks. Is this That's something right. that that people should be wearing all the time? Is this something people should periodically check like every few months? Like what's recommended here?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's definitely no recommendation so far. I think we're, we're learning a lot about the use of continuous glucose monitoring in the general population. And we, at Levels, just launched a large clinical trial looking at this. So we still need to establish what the ranges are and what the utility is in the general population. I think it's much better described in type 1 and type 2 diabetes, but we're really learning a lot right now. I mean, I can tell you what I do. There's a range at the company. Some people wear it all the time. Others like me, I'll wear it for two to four weeks and try to optimize and and improve my diet and improve my glucose control, reduce the number of spikes I have, and then I'll stop for a little while. And then I'll pick it up again a month later. So I actually will do two to four weeks and then take a one to two month break and then do another, I call them sort of optimizations. And I've learned something typically with each optimization, but I think there are a number of things that once you know them, you can take with you beyond the everyday continuous glucose monitoring.
0: Yeah. The personalized medicine piece of this, I think is really interesting. And just in general, how there's a lot of data available to the general public so that they have autonomy for, you know, taking control of their health and, one of the main elements of motivation is autonomy and feeling like you have some some sense of control instead of just reading some numbers. If you maybe get a blood test, maybe even get a copy of a blood test, which is just a snippet in time and isn't even a continuous thing. So being able to see what you're eating or even how other life stressors are impacting your metabolic health is really cool and really empowering. But I also wanted to ask about you know what if people are getting repeated low numbers or maybe they think they're healthier than they are? Like I, I bet a lot of people listening are you know athletes or people that prioritize their health and might be surprised that maybe that number isn't as high as they think. How have you guys as a company thought about people dealing with feeling discouraged about what the results might be?
1: Yeah. well, we've taken a very close look at our product and we' we've actually started updating it. So we used to have this idea of a metabolic score that we gave everyone each day uh, that mm-hmm. gave you some indication of how things went for the day. And we found exactly what you're talking about, right? People would get discouraged if for some reason they were not able to increase their score or you know, they couldn't figure out how to get a good score because the, the parameters for that score were not very clear. We've moved away from that kind of messaging and from the idea of a one definitive score And what we're starting to move toward are identifying wins and identifying ways that people can improve. I mean, where we started was this idea that your resilience can change, right? And it really can. I think, you know, even if you've sort of had insulin resistance for a long time, or if you are far down this track of elevated glucose, you know, you did your lipid panel, let's say, and it was sky high, those things can actually change. And in some cases, they can change pretty quickly with the right interventions basically with with the right monitoring and the right follow-up and a lot of it has to do with diet with sleep um, with exercise which i think exercise actually shows the best correlation with long-term health span so these things can change quite quickly when you apply yourself
0: i'm gonna ask a loaded question about diet I eat a whole foods, plant-based diet. I've had Dr. Casey Means on the show. probably a year ago. And we talked, I don't know. I haven't talked to her since then. So I'm not sure what she's currently saying because people are allowed to change their minds about things. But what type of diet? I mean, you've mentioned eating real food, but is there a type of diet in particular or just a way of eating that is better for your metabolic health than, than not?
1: So Casey is definitely more of a diet expert than I am, so I will Mm -hmm. defer to her. And and she does talk extensively about this. She talks a lot about avoiding refined carbohydrates, eating real foods, avoiding pesticides. There are these Mm. new compounds that we're finding called obesogens, which may contribute to encouraging the body to take in excess energy effectively. Things like sleep and then uh, light which impact your sleep cycle. Those are kind of the main things that she mentions. And, and I think that makes sense. If I had to be particular about it, I would say, you know, if, if I look across the literature, the diets that have been associated with the best outcomes that I've seen are ketogenic type diets. But I think where we try to be careful about that is it's really, it's not removing all carbs and just adding fat. It's removing refined carbs, particularly, and eating a healthy diet overall. So I think that's really the message and and what I think Casey promotes these days. And I agree with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you talked about some non-food related lifestyle things that people can do to improve their metabolic health. You mentioned sleep as mm-hmm. one of those. How does sleep impact your glucose? Because I think that might be a disconnect for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So sleep, there, we're showing that even one night of inadequate sleep can impact your metabolic function. Um, it impacts your your so glucagon and insulin work together to help you manage your sugar. And people that have had a poor night of sleep have eat higher levels of insulin, they have higher levels of glucose in their blood and they have evidence of more insulin resistance than those who have slept well. So there's a, a correlation between development of insulin resistance and lack of sleep. And there's also a correlation between changes in glucagon levels and lack of sleep. So lack of sleep has a pretty profound impact on the hormones that help you manage metabolic health.
0: Is there a minimum threshold or is that dependent on the individual?
1: I don't know that we have, I, this is where I would love to have continuous monitoring of everything, right? <laughs> I think that's where we're going, yeah. right? We don't, we don't yet know because people aren't really measuring these things in real time. Mm-hmm. The, the hormone that has been measured most in real time is cortisol. And cortisol has a natural spike in the morning. We know that when people don't sleep well, or when the, let's say you had an all-nighter, you slept from 4 a.m. to noon, your cortisol may bump up at noon instead of at 6 a.m. when it normally bumps up, right? That's the normal diurnal cycle is for it to go up early in the morning. If it bumps up at noon, now you're shifting your insulin resistance and, and sensitivity at different times of the day, and it has an impact on your glucose level. You know. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. But, but we know cortisol, glucagon, insulin, a lot of the hormones that are involved in metabolic health are impacted.
0: I was thinking a bit about like circadian rhythms and jet lag or shift work or like those types of things. Yeah. How can you use like the Levels app to potentially maybe w- have better experiences when you're traveling or if you're doing shift work to like mitigate some of the issues with that?
1: So the the Levels app is starting to help you avoid glucose spikes or at least identify them. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine folks that are on shift work are going to have higher glucose spikes because they're more insulin resistant. So just being able to monitor that and try to improve that could go a long way toward improving people's metabolic health. So I'd say that's the simplest way to do it is to just wear the device while you're on shift work and to see which foods you're eating and maybe at what times you're getting these different spikes. And there there are swaps that you can make to reduce the glucose level with a particular meal. If you eat protein or you eat some fat prior to eating the starch or glucose portion of your meal, that can help. We've seen a lot of people improve their glucose by walking after they eat. So for instance, if your glucose starts to go up, and you're able to get out and go for a 20, 30 minute walk, that can often stabilize your glucose quite quickly. So those are ways that you can use the app on shift work. Jet lag is a little bit trickier. And I think, you know, this is still very much tentative, but there's some tantalizing data that kind of changing your sleep cycle and changing your eating cycle to your destination can help you reduce jet lag. So for instance, if you're going over a six or a nine hour time zone change, one of the things that we've been experimenting with internally is not eating for say 16 hours and then having breakfast at the destination. And it turns out that in addition to the light, which is a primary determinant of your sleep-wake cycle, food availability Helps determine your sleep-wake cycle and your circadian rhythm. So, by resetting when you eat, you can actually uh, more quickly adjust. Um, and you know, we've these are all anecdotal results so far, but we have had a few folks who have been able to fly halfway around the world and have reported much less jet lag after doing this type of a intervention.
0: I'll add another anecdote to the pile here, which awesome. might be a little bit surprising. So. I used to travel a lot internationally for racing and I haven't done as much since, you know, the pandemic and having two little kids. And I'm excited to be returning back to international travel, hopefully next year when I'm not breastfeeding anymore. Awesome. Um, But I was always trying to figure that out. And I would notice it, especially around that, that eight hour mark, like going to Europe. I would go there and my, it was like my cortisol or my nervous system just wasn't working properly. Like I would go out for a ride and I couldn't get my heart rate up. And it was like, there was a governor just preventing me from being able to rise to the occasion. So I was doing everything I could trying to figure out this jet lag thing. And so I decided to try acupuncture and someone's like, try acupuncture. And I thought, well, okay, uh, I'll try acupuncture. So I went and it it did this miraculous thing. It worked. Like I went, I had almost Mm. no jet lag. I was able to push myself and then I tried it repeatedly and it worked repeatedly. Mm. And I I asked the acupuncturist, I I said, I know that there's, you know, there's lots here that I don't understand, but can you tell me roughly what you're doing? And basically they said that they were stimulating the organs of digestion to try to be on the same clock as where I was going.
1: That's really very
0: similar to what you just said, but (laughs) it it was through like, Yeah.
1: Acupuncture. acupuncture. Was was this, this was acupuncture you were doing at the destination you were flying to?
0: It would be before I left. They would be, yeah, they'd be like trying to set my clock essentially to, you know, my digestive clock to Uh what it would be like at the new destination. So I thought that was really interesting. And then now you said that. So I'm like, well, maybe there was something to that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I can't comment on acupuncture, but it seems like, you know, the, the resetting it with food can be really helpful. So yeah.
0: So I want to move on to talking about exercise because that's something that mm-hmm. you said can really help, you mm-hmm. know, with glucose and there's different types of exercise or, I mean, you mentioned walking and brisk walks are are great and you don't you know, people don't have to be doing ultra marathons in order to be healthy. And in mm-hmm. fact, ultra marathons might not be healthy for some people. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's a lot of data to suggest that. <laughs> yeah.
0: So in terms of training, is there like a, a better than option, like strength training, endurance training? What's, what's the best for your metabolic health? If there is a best.
1: Yeah, I think both types are good. If I had to, what I'll, I'll split it into glycolytic or anaerobic versus aerobic, right? And this is like powerlifting, strenuous exercise, strenuous strength training versus zone two or aerobic, going for a run, a walk, things like that. And actually, both are, are helpful and, and both are actually required, I think, for a healthy body. I mean, what's interesting is there are different effects on the continuous glucose monitor. So for strength training and strenuous exercise, we typically see a rise in glucose. So for instance, when I go do a CrossFit workout, my glucose will go from 90, let's say, up to 170 or 200. That's milligrams per deciliter. If I were to do a longer walk or a very slow run, a slow jog, let's say in my zone two, usually between like 120 to 140, then I often will see a drop in my glucose as my uh, slow twitch muscles are spending more time burning fat and they're working aerobically. So both of those things are, are super helpful metabolically. And as you know, both are, are required for fitness if you wanna be a, any kind of an endurance athlete and you know most types of athletes in general because those two types of muscle help each other out. But w- what's interesting is how the CGM changes with one versus the other.
0: I wanted to ask about body fat because there's an assumption that if you are overweight, then you are probably metabolically unhealthy. But if you don't have excess body fat, you're not overweight or obese. Can you still be metabolically unfit?
1: Yeah. Well, if if this paper that came out this past summer is correct, then many people are unfit. The ninety three percent overweight and not. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. mean, that's a, that's a lot of people. So, I think because of the diet that we consume as a country, uh, many of us are unhealthy metabolically. What we see is over time, a lot of the results of unhealthy eating are calorie overload. And that can result in varying degrees of weight gain depending on the individual. But, you know, there are a lot of individuals who are, who seem healthy. Otherwise, who when if if you were to do a number of laboratory tests, you might find out that they're not. A lot of these people have insulin resistance. So their fasting insulin level will be high, or they have some other marker of metabolic disease, which is things like blood pressure, et cetera.
0: And how does chronic stress play into all of this? Because I think that especially with the last couple of years, a lot of us have experienced probably higher levels of stress and maybe weren't even able to, and still maybe aren't able to do the things that they used to do to relieve that stress? How does chronic stress play a role in metabolic health?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We think that, I mean, this is still very controversial because it's been hard to measure, but one of the hormones I was talking about earlier, cortisol, uh, typically stays elevated longer in people who are under chronic stress. And we know that that is associated with overall increasing fasting insulin and insulin resistance, which is then likely to result in an elevated glucose and make you sick over time. So we know that there's a correlation between the hormones that are involved in chronic stress and metabolic disease. So what is happening in society is there's this confluence of events. It's the food that we're eating coupled with the stress that we're under, coupled with the fact that we are not exercising, which is just overloading our bodies. I I think if it were any one of those individually, we probably would be more resilient, not to use the word incorrectly. But I think the confluence of those things, particularly diet and stress together uh, and lack of exercise are really making people sicker.
0: Have you seen any stress relieving activities that have made an impact on that score holding diet as a constant?
1: We haven't been able to do studies that specific yet. I think that the interesting interventions that we've seen for chronic stress are things like mindfulness, breath work, which is really interesting. So, you know, these short, even, you know, 15 minute breath work exercises with rapid inhalation, exhalation, and, and breath holding seems to reset the sympathetic nervous system. And there is some evidence that can improve the stress hormones. You know, there's, there's one other thing that I didn't talk about, one other intersection between diet and disease, and that is there's, over time, chronic inflammation develops. And inflammation is another thing that is exacerbated by chronic stress. So our bodies have evolved to when we underwent that fight or flight response uh, out in the wild, we were getting ready for potentially for combat, right? And so your body in a fight or flight situation will actually ready the arm of the immune system that deals with puncture wounds. It's the innate immune system that can help fight off bacterial infections. Turns out by enabling that arm and shutting down the more adaptive arm, we're essentially reducing, well, first we're promoting cardiovascular disease because macrophages are intimately involved in the development of plaques and cardiovascular disease. So chronic stress promotes that. And then we're simultaneously reducing our ability to do cancer surveillance and, and things like that. So the, the 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 immune cells that are involved in that tend to be downregulated in stress and chronic stress. And so that puts you at risk for a whole other set of diseases. So the, this interplay between the inflammatory state and your insulin resistance actually is also really important for the development of disease and that's another reason why chronic stress is so important to be able to deal with.
0: Yeah, as you're you're speaking about that, I was thinking about people with type 1 diabetes who have, mm-hmm. you know, insulin problems but have to regulate it and can they do anything with their lifestyle, like that, like using breath work or reducing inflammation that help, or are they just sort of hooped?
1: No, not at all. I mean, we've I've talked with several nutritional counselors and physicians who have helped lots of people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. I just want to make the disclaimer here that Levels isn't really designed to help folks with diabetes. It's designed more for the general population. But there are programs that have been really successful in helping people with both type one and type two diabetes to achieve better metabolic health. And I think one of the things that many of them will tell you is that a good exercise regimen, for instance, can really help put glucose in check because it sensitizes the muscles in the interior. So people have to take less insulin.
0: I'm kind of jumping around now. I'm jumping back to exercise. So we're talking about inflammation and exercising too much can actually cause excess inflammation in the body if you're doing too much. So and I'm assuming that impacts your immune system and you were talking about the interplay of the macrophages and mm-hmm. what was it what was the other part?
1: And the the adaptive arm of the immune system. Yes. You know, I th- I think damage following exercise is a really interesting one. I- I'm not super familiar with the literature on that, but my guess is uh the type of tissue damage that occurs in the and the follow-up response is very different from the type of activation you get with stress and with chronic mm. stress. I mean, I don't really have a good basis to comment, but I don't have any reason to believe that the inflammation that follows tissue damage from exercise puts you at higher risk for metabolic disease.
0: Okay. And you you mentioned high blood pressure and how chronic stress could contribute to higher blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Why does that happen?
1: Yeah. So that's actually quite controversial. Actually, when in going back and looking at the literature, I think there's a more, a more well established correlation between food and uh, blood pressure than there is between stress and blood pressure. We know that the, you know, epinephrine is so epinephrine is one of the primary hormones that's released in the fight or flight response. And that causes your heart rate to go up and it causes your arteries to constrict. So that's an immediate vasoconstrictor and will cause your blood pressure to go up immediately. Now, what that whether that keeps your blood pressure high or maintains the blood pressure at a higher rate is still very controversial, but that's a plausible mechanism under stress. In a dietary sense, so if you're eating too many refined carbohydrates, for example, the elevated insulin levels that will be in your bloodstream can both cause a change in the kidney salt retention, which can increase your blood volume and increase your blood pressure. And you can also see there's also a direct action of insulin at the what's called the endothelial lining, the inside of the cells that changes the tension of the vessel through nitric oxide. So there are those two mechanisms by which uh, insulin can impact the blood pressure in the body.
0: Yeah. The main, one of the main reasons that I started eating a whole foods plant-based diet like 10 years ago was because everyone in my family would get high blood pressure as they got older. And Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a second, like this. I don't believe that this is going to be genetic. Like this can't happen to me and we'll see what happens. But that was a primary reason was, was diet. But I've been thinking about other things that impact blood pressure because having high blood pressure isn't good for you. So we are talking about stress. We're talking about breath work and Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about the literature, uh, how stress or breath work can improve blood pressure, but it's just been on my mind.
1: Oh yeah. No. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah I, I don't know that there's a great correlation. We still need to do more studies and it's hard to get people to do studies on interventions like breath work because <laughs> there's no pharmaceutical company behind it, right there's no there's no payer that's willing to do these these large clinical trials. I have found personally that I can actually change my blood pressure through just inhaling and you know holding my breath and then exhaling. I can drop it by a good 10 or 15 points. Oh wow. So, um, yeah, you should try it. If you have a home blood pressure monitor, yeah, um, just just take some deep breaths and play with it a little bit, and I think you'll find that you can actually reduce your blood pressure quite a bit. I mean, this is another anecdote. I, I don't think we can make much of it, but it's kind of funny. I had high blood pressure when I was in my residency, and you know, obviously, it's a fairly high pressure environment. Um, but <laughs> what was really interesting is I had to get on medication for it. I was on a, a fairly high dose of lisinopril, and actually, when my residency ended and then my roommate moved out, my blood pressure went back to normal and I could get off the medication. So, so interesting. <laughs> you know, there it's it's very anecdotal. And I, I think, you know, blood pressure, particularly in young to middle-aged adults can be very labile. So there are a number of factors that influence it. But yeah, I think there are also a lot of things to that same point that can change it.
0: So do you have any professional athletes that are using levels during sport? Like, I think that the UCI might... I think it might be illegal to have a CGM in while you're racing and to be using it. I can't remember. I thought I heard that. But have you been working with athletes so that they can make better nutritional decisions while they're exercising?
1: Yes. Both internally, we're working with a couple of athletes as well as sponsoring studies for athletes. And there's a really interesting paper that I can't talk too much about uh, that'll be coming out soon showing that by changing a diet, you can actually achieve... Great, well, you know what? I'm not going to say it because I'm not sure what they want. They're one of our one of our good external collaborators and mm-hmm. they've done some fantastic research on basically the diet that an athlete would can consume and the performance they can achieve. And mm. I think it's it's you know what we're seeing more and more, and, and this isn't just from this study, but there are a number of studies now showing that you can achieve great athletic performance and still have manageable gl- blood glucose. Um, I, I think what happens with a lot of athletes is they will carbo load for various reasons and <laughs> and that can actually cause pretty, pretty massive glucose spikes. And you don't necessarily, you don't need to do that in order to perform well. Now there are obviously certain activities that, that will require it. If you're doing, you know, CrossFit games or something like that, you may need to, you know, there, there are different strategies that people employ. But I think what we're seeing is in general, you can both maintain good glucose control and good performance.
0: Yeah, I imagine that it's one of those, it depends questions of, you know, what is the intensity? What is the number of days in a row that you're doing? Because there's the muscle and liver glycogen depletion that needs to be replaced, but then maybe people are over-replacing <laughs> what, they're, yeah. uh, what they're using.
1: That's right. And it's easy. It's quite easy to do that, right? Given the Substances that are now available to us, we can take in glucose at a phenomenal rate. I mean, I only have to drink a can of Coke to see that, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are lots of specialized, you know, the the little goo shots or whatever you use for different types of endurance and, and performance athletes. So I think, you know, one important thing, you don't have to do this during a race, but as an athlete, it might be a good idea to just check your glucose for a couple of weeks during your training and to see if you're having major glucose spikes. Because you, I think the the data is showing us is that you can cut out those glucose spikes and still achieve solid athletic performance.
0: Yeah. Um, something interesting that I found when I was using it, because I would check it like, okay, I feel like my blood sugar is dropping on my bike. So I would stop and scan the, the CGM and then look. And then see how different sport nutrition products would impact my blood glucose and yeah it was interesting to see that like fig bars made it spike up the worst and i was really surprised by that because like there's there's a little a little bit of fiber in there but there i didn't look at the ingredients there might be like added sugar in there too
1: oh for sure (laughs) (laughs) i would be surprised if there isn't just a little bit of high fructose corn syrup in there too but maybe not it depends on the brand that you get but i think just thinking about the outside of those right there's there's fig in the middle which is already like if you look at fruit fig and dates are some of the have the most sugar and, and fructose in them and then if you add the the refined carbohydrates that's in the um, shell around the outside that's probably a pretty good one two punch
0: yeah yeah so i think that just talking about some of the, these things is going to spark interest with some of the listeners of like well curiosity here. Like, I I wonder, you know, what I'm like and how I can get better. And that's why I was using Levels and I want to do it again now. Um, Awesome. Offline, we were talking a little bit about like lactate and ketones. Mm -hmm. Is that a direction that Levels is looking at? And is that something that could be tested continuously like glucose?
1: Well, what's interesting is we're seeing a lot of companies start to develop other metabolic monitors. So there are several ketone monitors. Most of those use breath ketones. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are Abbott announced this year that they're developing lactate as well as uh, alcohol monitoring, which is interesting. There are a couple of alcohol sensors that have come out recently. So people can start to measure their blood alcohol or their interstitial alcohol levels. So yeah, I think there's a lot of interest in this. What's interesting about adding things like lactate or ketones is that you can start to get a more full metabolic picture. Glucose is really at best, you know, maybe 10% of the puzzle. Ideally, you'd be able to measure insulin, which is actually quite hard for a number of technical reasons. But I think in the in the near term, we're going to see a lot of work on ketones, lactate, probably different sensors that can measure some form of free fatty acid or a proxy for free fatty acid, because it's, it's, we were talking about the fact that cells can metabolize both glucose and fat. And, you know, right now we're really only looking at one side of the equation and trying to infer fat burning from what we see in glucose. It would be much better to be able to measure both simultaneously. And there are a few devices out there that can do that now, but it's, they're not generally available and there aren't, I think, good apps that can help interpret the data for people, which is really, I think, the most important thing is to be able to give people insights and, and put them into context.
0: Yeah, because most people are not medical experts. They're not, new, they're not dietitians. And knowing how to make sense of data is such an important part of how do you take action. And if you don't know what actions to take, you just feel helpless. And that's not a good place to be at all.
1: Yeah, no, 100% agree. You know, and that's very much the company's philosophy. It, we try to make this data accessible and understandable for people, and it's it's taking the guesswork out of it, enabling people to get insights that they can use to improve their health. We talk a lot about this concept of interoception. It's it's something that that I think intuitively makes sense, but it, it's kind of how you feel, knowing how you are by how you feel, and what I think glucose adds to that, and what hopefully you know these other markers will add more of is the ability to sense how you are doing internally. And and more than just a gut feeling of I have energy, I don't have energy. you know, I'm feeling high, I'm crashing, I'm sleepy, I'm not. We can start to look at the actual data and we can look at your metabolism. And I think that mirror that people are able to look at will be really helpful in improving their health.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking about knowing how you feel versus looking at a number. And I think you need both. But The Mm -hmm. other side of it is Mm -hmm. like, people will look at the number to be like, okay, how do I feel? Like HRV is a prime example. You know, they'll look at their HRV in the morning and be like, oh, it's low. I'm going to feel bad today. And then they just end up feeling bad today because they decided they're going to feel bad today, you know, versus saying, well, how do I actually feel? Because sometimes you can have a low HRV and still feel really good, but not letting the numbers get in your head and mess with you
1: hundred percent. Yeah. I didn't mean to imply that. I think interoception is very much a holistic thing, right? It's how you feel plus interpretation of the numbers, right? I think so that's looking exactly
0: the, what you were saying is that it's not just about this number. It's about really knowing how you feel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and abstracting away from the number a little bit, like, you know, we, we were getting away from just looking at your glucose level or just looking at your metabolic score or just looking at your HRV, right? I mean, you know, I used whoop for a while and. I think we all have days where we get up and whoops telling us we should have had a great night's sleep and we feel terrible, right? Or, or vice versa. So there isn't a, there's, there's generally not a direct match between any one number and your overall feeling. So it's important to trust that intuition and then to put the numbers into context.
0: Yeah. Like health and performance isn't reductionist, but it's just about knowing yourself and then just trying to do the best that you can with the information that you have.
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely.
0: So where can people find Levels? And if they have more questions, where can they find more information?
1: Levelshealth.com. The product is now generally available. So you can sign up right on the website. We'll ship the CGMs to you. And we have an app. We don't make the CGMs. We just provide them through a third party. And um, we make the app to enable people to interpret the data. I think one other resource that I would like to call out is the blog. So levelshealth.com slash blog. We've made a real effort. And I think the team's done an excellent job of creating educational content that's not biased. We're not trying to get people to buy CGMs. What we're trying to do is help people understand metabolic health and how it impacts them. And I think the team's done a really great job of covering all the issues related to metabolic health and how these might impact you.
0: Yeah. I've spent some time on that blog and also in the app there's recommended you know reading. And I think that that education piece is really cool.
1: Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. We've been working hard at that. I have to give the team a lot of congratulations there.
0: Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And hopefully after listening to this, people are more curious about their metabolic health and taking action to be their best self.
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me, Sonia.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the show. I really appreciate you coming every single week and listening to these great guests and also to my solo episodes. If you want more, make sure you subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, where I go into the intersection of high performance and well-being, because let's face it, high performance isn't always healthy. And one of my top values is health and helping people strive in a way that brings them fulfillment and longevity and health is super important. Thank you to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney Show and PayPal with your donations. I have a great team here that helps keep this show going and it couldn't be done without you. And I want to thank Roma, my audio producer. And I also want to thank Rebecca for show notes and assets. Everybody does such a great job here and I'm so lucky to have my team. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for leaving us your reviews. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you right back here next week.